You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. I was going to wish Molly a happy birthday, too, but she went to the nursery, I think, (laughs) to help out back there. So if you can hear me back there, Molly, happy birthday once again to you. But good to have others with us, those from college or training of sorts are back, and so good to have you back joining us again, too. It's good to worship. I want you to turn to the book of uh, Matthew chapter, there we go, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, we're not doing a study of this particular section, but I think it just sets us up for where we will study again today. So Matthew chapter 1, if you want to make your way there to verse 18. From last week, I had faithful Malachi who comes through with a picture when there's very few others, none others, and here's Malachi, and I appreciate this once again. We looked at last week, we were in uh, Luke, for, or at least starting there, for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is a Savior for the world is born. That's what we're celebrating. We would, we would say that phrase relatively like, yeah, Savior to the world is born, kind of almost nonchalant, but Let's take a grasp of what is going on, that a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord, in Bethlehem to save his people from their sins. So thank you, Malachi, for drawing that and the reminder there. And we want to keep being reminded of this Savior as we study God's Word and look at him once again today. So if you're in Matthew, I'm going to start in verse 18 and just read through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray once again. Lord, again, as we come to your word, to multiple places today and multiple thoughts on just who is the son born to Joseph and Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit and how we put together these things, Lord, would you just grant understanding Uh, through the various texts and what we'll think about today. And then through that, Lord, channeling through that, grant worship of just who you are and what, what grace and love would send a son on a rescue mission for sinners. So guide us to be delivered to praise, to worship you through what we think about and study in these next minutes that we have together. I ask this by your spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, last week we kind of began this uh, Christmas series on God incarnate. God incarnate, I think you've still got it on the front of your bulletin. Looking at the, this truth and reality, last week really looking at the reality of the deity of Christ, that he is fully and truly God. And the Old Testament looked forward to this child who would be, as we saw just in Matthew here, would be God with us, as well as the mighty God in Isaiah 9. And then in the New Testament, we found the Old Testament being revealed, places like Hebrews 1 and Matthew 1 again. And Jesus himself, we, we looked at John eight fifty eight, just that short declaration where he says, before Abraham was, I am, or I, I am, as we looked at the emphasis last week. This week, we're going to explore more of what J.I. Packer, and again, I'm using some from his, his book I brought just to show you, Knowing God. So in case you're reading along in his book and you go, well, I think Mike said something similar to that, Is he, just to make sure I'm not plagiarizing, I'm saying here's my source, but not, not everything written here is from him. But he calls it, he calls it the supreme mystery, or we looked at last week, the greatest mystery. And he says this, the, the Christmas message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger was God. But then he goes on to add, he says, but this is only half the story. So from Matthew, I want you to turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we were, I think we even looked at this last week, John chapter 1, we looked at the beginning of the chapter, and even I think this verse, or down to 18, but look at verse 14. And it's going to kind of be our launching pad for us in our study this week, where John, he's already shown Jesus to be the Word who was already in the beginning, this Word who was with God and the Word who was God. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, he explains really in five words the incarnation. Verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These words from verse 14, they seem to be one of the most succinct treatments on this subject. And, and just really summarizing in five words, the incarnation. That the Word who is God is the Word who became flesh. The word for became here means, you could say, to become or to be or be born or be created. Interestingly, in this same chapter, in verse 3, the same word to become, where the word became flesh, same, same word there in the original is used to describe the word that, that all things were made through him. So those things made through the word, same here as he, he became flesh. And thus the maker of all things, looking back to verse 3, is indeed the one made flesh. There's lyrics from a, from a song from Sovereign Grace Music. I think we'll even be singing it next week on Christmas Day. Glory be to God on high. And they go like this. Emptied of his majesty, he comes in human form. Being source begins to be, and God is born. I just thought those are interesting lines. Being source begins to be. And now we know, we know the same God has no beginning has no end, has no years, and yet in this supreme mystery that Packer talks about, this eternal God takes on flesh. And it's here, this taking on flesh, where we get this, 
this title or this name, the incarnation. And that's not just a, that doesn't mean like a carnation, like a florist would sell, like those types of carnations. It's incarnation. It's God in the flesh. Bruce Ware writes this, and maybe it's helpful for us to understand what are we even talking about when we're talking about God incarnate? What, what does that mean? He says, the term incarnation is from Latin, not Hebrew or Greek. In Latin, the term caro or carnus refers to flesh or meat. So he says this will be helpful. We use this Latin word in our English word carnivore to mean a, a meat-eating animal or, or plant. So by incarnation, Christians have referred to the point in human history when the eternal Son of God was joined with human flesh or a human nature. Fully God, becoming also fully a man, is the wonder of the Incarnation. In the passages we looked at, somewhat from the Old Testament last week, they testify to God coming in the flesh. We saw a child was to be born. Remember, a son was to be given, you shall call his name. There's a child to be born. There's a son. And yet this same son's name will be Mighty God and so forth. Or Isaiah, I think it's 7, the virgin shall bear a son. And we see that fulfilled, Matthew 1. And yet that son, that child is also called Emmanuel or God with us. In the New Testament, there's places like Romans 1.3. Paul's explaining the gospel that was promised beforehand before, uh, through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And he says this, concerning his son. What about this gospel proclaimed beforehand? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Or we saw, even as we've been studying Romans 8, verse 3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Or as milk pointed to Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, did you catch it? God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Colossians 1.2 speaks of Christ's body of flesh. Or 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul's speaking about the mystery of godliness. It's sort of a gospel nutshell. And he says, He, that is God, was manifested in the, in the flesh. Or maybe just most clearly, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's the incarnation. The Word became flesh. Early on, though, in the church, they would wrestle with this idea and this mystery. Just what does it mean that Jesus is fully God, and yet this is God in full humanity? Jesus is a man. Questions maybe, is the makeup of this Christ, is he, truly, is he truly a human? Or if he's truly a man, like how could God ever dwell with a man? Or are these two natures, this godhood, this, this manhood, are they combined? Or maybe Jesus, he's kind of half human, half God? And so various heresies would be ruled out. And I'm just going to briefly cover them. I'm drawing on some help from the ESV Study Bible, and I, in my notes, I thought, well, I'll just plug. I mean, if you're late on Christmas gifts, this is one of my favorite. You have your own version, your own study Bibles you like. 
it's just great. It's weathering. It's old, and the pages are oily on it, but there's great helps in the back and notes. Uh, again, the notes aren't Scripture. Scripture is Scripture authority, but it's helpful, and in these ways, it's helpful. And I'm also drawing on Wayne Grudem here as well, uh, for some of his, his history and ideas on some of these things. But we'll look at these various histories. I'll be, I'll be rather brief. Where I'm just going to go through them. You can write them down or look them up later on your own. But there was one group, thinking of Jesus as being fully God, one group, they're called the Ebionites. And from there we get the term Ebionism. You didn't know you were, you were in class today. They would teach Jesus. Jesus was simply the name of a man. Okay, here's their idea. Jesus was a man that lived. His name was Jesus. And then the power of God came on him. Okay, so he's just... You know, another guy, but here's Jesus. The power of God comes on him, enabling, quote, him to fulfill the messianic role, but that Christ was really not, was not God. That's Ebionism. There's another view called Arianism, in that they denied the eternal, fully divine nature of Christ. They're believing Jesus to be the first and greatest of created beings. So Jesus is maybe... Like God, he's similar to the Father, but he's not of the same essence of God. And they might look at John where we are here, John verse 1, verse 14, and say, see, Jesus became, he was begotten, he was, he was made. Wayne Grudem, though, would answer, he'd say, the many texts affirming Christ's deity. And again, that, for that, listen to last week, we went through some of those at least, are so strong that the early church concluded that whatever only begotten meant, it did not mean created. You might recognize the Jehovah Witnesses. They're kind of great, 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 and so forth. Grandchildren of Arianism, a heresy denying the full deity of Christ. But what about Jesus being fully a man? Others would deny his full humanity. Docetism denied the physical substance of Christ. So, he wasn't even physical. He just appeared to be a man. It's another, another heresy, another view. One, one statement was that when Jesus, uh, when Jesus walked on the... And this is from long ago. When Jesus walked on the beach, he left no footprints. I'm pretty sure this was before the, the famous poem, Footprints in the Sand. I think that was well before them. They're saying, no, well, when he walked on the beach, he just left none. He wasn't a physical being. He was more spiritual. I'm not disputing the treasured poem, only to say when Jesus lived on the earth, he left footprints. They were there. He was physically there. That's docetism. Another, now they get longer, Apollinarianism. That's a fun one, Apollinarianism, where Christ is only, he's only partially human. You know, if we think of body, mind, spirit, he's partially human in body and mind, but not in spirit. And so he's like two-thirds human, and not fully man. And my study Bible notes here, a, a Gregory of Nazianzen, oh, I'm probably even saying that wrong, Nazianzen, there we go, Gregory, he said this, thinking of this, you know, is Christ just kind of partially human? He says, that which he, that is Christ, has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. And then, there's a comment that says Jesus had to assume every element in a human nature in order to fully redeem humanity. 
That's four of them. There's two more. And these come in when we think of, well, how did this fully divine and how did the fully human, how are they united and yet distinct in this one person of Jesus Christ? How did the Word, God, become flesh or man? And so two other heresies arose concerning this relationship. Nestorianism made the distinction of natures so strong that it saw in Christ, it saw two persons, not just one person, but two. Wayne Grudem says, nowhere in Scripture do we have an indication that the human nature of Christ is an independent person deciding to do something contrary to the divine nature of Christ. Rather, we have a, we have a consistent picture of a, a single person acting in wholeness and unity. Jesus always speaks as I, not as, as we. Nestorianism. Then lastly, there's uh, Eutychianism. And here is where the unity of natures, this fully God, the nature fully God and fully man, this unity of natures is so strong that Christ is basically kind of one nature inhabiting a mixture of divine and human. They're kind of just mixed, or, or in one way, um, it also just becomes a third kind of nature. It's also called this. It's called monophysitism. You're just loving these words. I'm reading them, but... Yeah, monophysitism or physitism, I don't know. Mono, monos, one, we got that. Physis, or we think of as nature. So they're saying Christ is of one nature. Kind of a, again, as I said, a third nature arising out of the other two. The problem is then, again, here this denies Jesus being fully God and fully man. And so Grudem writes, if, this, if that was so, He could not truly represent us as a man, nor could he be true God and able to earn our salvation. And you say, wow, Mike, thanks for bringing us down that road on the week before Christmas about all the isms. What's the point? The point is heresies developed regarding one of these bedrock foundations of just who Jesus is. And so these are not just for scholars. They've got implications, their salvation implications for what we believe, who we believe Jesus to be, and what he accomplished. And it's important we hold Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man in one person. To add elements of these heresies, as I mentioned, the Jehovah's Witness, they're still going to continue to pop up. We're not beyond that. We, we think, well, they settled it, and everybody goes, well, that's how... They continue, and they don't just go away. And we must be on our guard even today where we make Jesus maybe into our own image or we begin to think, I, I, just, I like to think of Jesus as... And somebody fills in the blank. The scholars, the people of old, the, the pastors of old, and we too must say, what does God say in His Word? Who is this Christ? And we find He is fully God. He is the I Am and he came in the flesh. Speaking of old things, I want to I take us to a summary statement. Uh, you got it in your bulletin. It's on, I think, the announcement side. It's called the symbol of Chalcedon. This, this is read at every, I think it's still read at every graduation from the seminary I was at. It was read at, at my graduation, I believe. And it comes from... Uh, I think you've got the date there, 8451, and I'm going to read it to you. 
Please don't get lost in the back and forth of it, but what this statement is seeking to do is to discount the heresies and say, what, who is this Jesus? How is he God, fully God, fully man? So let me read it, and I've given it to you so that it's not so hard to listen along here. But it says, it says, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. Now, it just means, I think, of the same essence or substance. Not that he's just similar, he's of the same essence. So consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us, And for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. And here you get these distinctions, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son and only begotten. God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the Creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. I think if you were to go through there, those isms, the Eutychianism and Apollinarism, those sorts of things you hear defended against within that symbol of Chalcedon. Now, before we wrap this up with some implications, I want to just deal with one other difficulty that you may not have thought of, but I want to just bring our ways, J.I. Packer does in in this section on the Word of God becoming uh, incarnate. One difficulty when we consider this, this, this Word that became flesh being fully God and fully man. Here it is. So there's some passages in the Scriptures that allude to Jesus not knowing certain things. Some might come to mind. Mark 13, Jesus says He... It's not been revealed to him. He doesn't know the hour or day of when he will come again. Remember that in Mark 13? Even the, I think it's the Son of Man does not know the hour or day. Or in Mark chapter 5, there's that sickly woman that touches his clothes. If I just touch, I'll be healed. And she does, and she's healed. And yet, he, Jesus perceives power has gone out from him, but he, but he asks that question, who touched my garments? So maybe there's instances where we think, well, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't know certain things. But then there's other moments that Packer points out that Jesus knows intimate details. He knows the, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, knew about her details of her life. Or Peter goes out uh, to fish, and Jesus says, the first one you catch, it's going to have uh, the shekel in its mouth to pay the tax. Jesus knows 
The first one that Peter's going to catch, has a ch- how does he know that? And so we see that as well. So as we think on the, this unity of the, the personhood in Christ and, and yet that of his distinct natures being fully God, fully man, we might puzzle at some of these things and say, what explains this? Now, some might want to explain that Jesus, in becoming a man, he gave up some of his divinity. It's called the, as long as we're in the school setting, it's called the kenosis theory. And it comes out of Philippians 2.7. I'd like you to turn there. I, I didn't look back at my sermon notes when we went through Philippians, but thinking we would have perhaps talked about this at that point. But if you look up Philippians 2, I'm going to read verses 5 through 8, but it's, the, the crux is really in verse 7. Depending on your translation, you'll see kind of what this kenosis theory is trying to get at. So Philippians chapter 2, let me start in verse 5, where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the ESV that I'm reading from, the translation is made himself nothing. If you're in an NASB, though, you've got that phrase, emptied himself. And the verb there, I don't want to read a lot of Greek verbs to you. It's not really helpful, but there it's uh, echinosin, echinosin. And you hear in there, the, the, I think the root of that is kanao, and that's where we get this kenosis theory. Kenosis theory. I say we, I'll say they, which implies that this emptying, this kanao, the emptying means that in some way Jesus gave up some deity in taking on flesh. He gave up some of it. And maybe some of the references, like he didn't know who touched or he's asking or... Uh, in Mark, he doesn't know the hour he's coming. Maybe, maybe that kind of proves that, yeah, he's not fully God. He doesn't know certain things. J.I. Packer, though, writes this. He says, The impression of Jesus which the Gospels give is not that he was wholly bereft of divine knowledge and power, but that he drew on both, drew on both intermittently while being content for much of the time not to do so. The impression, in other words, is not so much of deity reduced as of divine capacities restrained. Packer's saying there's these divine capacities of Christ restrained. And and don't we see that when he's mocked, when Jesus is spit on, he doesn't just call down from heaven and call down fire, but he marches on towards the eternal plan of God to the cross. And so the answer, and I'm again drawing on Packer, the answer of what appears to be, what's this kind of this restraint of Jesus' divine capacities, it's an answer that really goes beyond the earthly life of Christ. And so Packer points to this eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, a relationship that involves the eternal submission of the Son to the Father. Now, don't hear in there a difference in equality. It's not a lessening of deity or glory of Christ. It's a distinction of the roles and relationship of the Son to the Father in in eternity. 
Jesus says this, just to give you some scripture, John 6, 38. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's this succumbing to the will of the Father. I mean, we would think, we would hear him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Or a place like John 8, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And so Packer says of Jesus, his knowing, like the rest of his activity, was bounded by his Father's will. And therefore the reason why he was ignorant of, for instance, the date of his return, was not that he had given up the power to know all things at the Incarnation, but that the Father had not willed that he should have this particular piece of knowledge while on earth prior to his passion or the the crucifixion. So Jesus' limitation of knowledge is to be explained, not in terms of the mode of the Incarnation, but with reference to the will of the Father for the Son while on earth. I think it's been helpful to think on Jesus taking on flesh, not as a subtraction of his deity. His coming to earth, taking the word becoming flesh is not a lessening of deity, but an addition, an adding to himself humanity. Remaining fully God while taking on flesh. And again, just to close here on this section, I like what the study Bible has said in relation to verse 7 here in Philippians. They say, Paul is stressing that Christ who had all the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. His love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of sinful mankind. They go on to say the emptying consisted of his becoming human, not of his giving up any part of his true deity. All right, well, let's put this all in terms of what does this mean? What are some implications coming out of this, the Word becoming flesh? And again, as last week, I have three. Not that there's only three by any means, but three implications as we come out of thinking of Jesus, fully God, fully man. Number one is wonder. To wonder at the mystery. I've explained all the heresies and how does this all, and I'm, we, I, you've got the symbol of Chalcedon, and you might have read that and said, okay, I need some time to think on that. It's to wonder at the mystery. Again, this Gregory of last name that I can't pronounce, not his last name, it's for, where he's from, Nazianzus, it's close. He said this, the begetting of God, that is Jesus, must be honored by silence. It's a great thing for you to learn that he was begotten. But the manner of his generation, we will not admit that even angels can conceive, much less you. Honored by silence. I, I like that. I, don't, I tried to look it up. I don't think that's, that's not where we get the song Silent Night from. But think of that. When we think of Silent Night, Holy Night, there's a silence here that this Gregory of Nazianzus is getting at, this a silence of honor and wonder. Mary herself, 
when she was told of this conceiving and bearing of a son to be named Jesus, she said, she said, how will this be since I am a virgin? And to paraphrase the angel's answer, it's God will do it. And a child will be born who is the Son of God. And so next week, even on Christmas Day, we're going to be singing a song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We've sung it before, but it goes, at least one stanza, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. In the dawning of the King, He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. The song will call us, and one implication is to call us to wonder at the mystery. Number two is to imitate God's humility, to imitate this. Jesus humbled himself. You see it there in, in Philippians if you're still there. He being God, a very God, he did not hold on to his exalted status. He took on flesh, being born in the likeness of men. And where we read from in Philippians, Paul uses this, and he uses this instance of Jesus humbling to teach the church there. This is how you ought to think among yourselves. Look at verse, if you're still in Philippians, look at verse 3, where Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's the connection. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The humility of Christ in the manger and beyond. It's the eternally purposeful redemption plan for his own. It's a plan for redemption and it's an example. It's not just an example. So don't just live like Jesus. That's all he came. He came to be a propitiation for our sins. But there's this example Paul uses for us to imitate this humility. Exalted, oh yes, and humbled himself. Imitate it. And then number three is he is able. He is able to help us. Jesus coming in the flesh, he is able to truly deliver us and help us. I want you to go now to our last scriptures of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. If you just make your way there, lastly, I want to read just two sections out of Hebrews. One is here in chapter 2, starting in verse 14, that we'll look at. As you go there, as you look at verse 14, again, Packer writes, this. He says it's this of Jesus becoming a real human baby. He says he had not ceased to be God. He was no less God than before, but he had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. He who made man was now learning what it felt like to be man. He who made the angel who became the devil was now in a state in which he could be tempted, could not indeed avoid being tempted by the devil. And the perfection of his human life was achieved only by conflict with the devil. The epistle to the Hebrews, looking up to him in his ascended glory, draws great comfort from this fact 
And so chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then if you just flip over to chapter 4, similarly, chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, I'll just start in 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our God who took on flesh is able to conquer the very thing we never could, death. Our God who took on flesh is our merciful, He's our faithful high priest. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who fully satisfies the wrath of God in our place. Our God who took on flesh suffered when tempted and so is able to help us. And our God who took on flesh being tempted was totally without sin. Therefore, we may draw near the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need. The unapproachable, the holy and mighty God became approachable through God the Son. And because of the incarnation, what we're celebrating and and the effects of that to the cross and resurrection and beyond, through that we may approach God with confidence. Let us wonder and imitate and then draw near to Jesus who is God incarnate. Let's pray. Lord, in in the week that we have before we celebrate in a day sort of way this this Christmas Eve, Christmas Day of your coming. I'm just praying for each of us and the preacher included to wonder and imitate and rest in you, that you are able. And then, Lord, as already, already I think Milt mentioned this morning, Lord, may this be our story through the year. Lord, I don't, I don't like to think Christmas is over. I like the lights and the whole season. And yet we see the, the snow and cold of January and February yet to come. But Lord, strengthen us with the truths that we're learning and seeing coming out of this season that we would wonder and imitate and take joy in and rest in who you are throughout the year. And so I, I pray that as well for your help in this. And then Lord... Guide us again to share that light with others who remain 
in darkness, who do not know and do not wonder. Lord, may, may you just guide us in those conversations with the words that would point them to the Savior once again, the Savior of the world. And we just pray this and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota. 